verse 50 to 58. This is the word of God. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'll now invite Pastor Young to deliver the sermon today. Well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, I got to uh, catch up a little with the favorite cartoon thing, and I was surprised to find that even people that are uh, definitely a lot younger than I am have still watched Looney Tunes uh, growing up. I don't know if that is the case anymore. I feel like uh, I feel like my son's not going to benefit, or you know, benefit from uh, Looney Tunes because we just have like subscription services now, and so we don't really watch just normal TV, and so it's a little bit different. Uh, my name's Young, I'm a pastor here at New Life, and I definitely want to welcome you this morning. Um, if you got stuck outside during that little traffic jam, trying to get in and uh, get your name tags on, I think it's still going. Um, yeah, apologies, we're still trying to implement new technology, so it does take a little bit, a little uh, while to get things going. Now, we're in our final two weeks of our First Corinthians series, United as One, uh, in this final section, we've been looking at being one in resurrection. And as we've seen how the resurrection is uh, central to our faith, and Jesus' resurrection being the promise of our own. And today, uh, we're going to take a look at the dismantling of death itself. So before we get there, how about we pray? Let me pray for us. Father, we know, Lord, that you are sovereign. We know, Lord, that you are good, that you're all-powerful, that in you, you hold the keys to life and death itself. When we think upon you, when we meditate upon your word, we can be reminded, Lord, that as the all-powerful one, you have everything under control, and we can trust in you. And we want to place our trust in you this morning as we talk about this, this topic of death. We really want to look to you and recognize, Lord, that you are gracious to us, that you're kind, that even should the world turn its back on us, you'll never leave us nor forsake us. 
It's in this that we stake all of our trust, and it's because of this that we love you, because we know that you love us. Would you guide us this morning? Would you give us wisdom from the Holy Spirit? Would you illuminate this word to our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to reorient and and change our lives, have our lives transformed by you as we're clothed by your goodness. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last enemy to be abolished is death. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 26, a couple weeks ago, uh, coming out of Easter. Uh, We read this very timely verse, and we uh, read it going into our final section of 1 Corinthians, as we've talked about being one in resurrection, and so obviously it was very uh, central to everything we've been reading. And we read this verse as we examined how central Jesus Christ's resurrection is to our faith, and we looked at how our lives here on earth gain significance and meaning as we look to our resurrected lives in the future. And this verse talks so openly and clearly about such a big topic, Death, talks about death, and as we've talked about the resurrection of the dead and the everlasting life that is still to come, surely death itself has to be overcome. It must be abolished, as we read in this scripture, if we're to have eternal life in the resurrection. Otherwise, what are we talking about? Now, I wanna ask, have you ever had thoughts about eternal life? Have you ever thought about eternal life or had deep thoughts about death? This might be a bit of a morbid topic. You know, as a child, uh, one of my first experiences with death was with the death of a goldfish that I bought at a street market. You know, some of you guys might have had a very similar experience. Uh, whenever you buy stuff at street markets, it tends to break or, or die, I guess. Uh, before this, I'd heard about things like death or I'd seen you know, Mario die on screen or little things like that, but I had never really experienced this firsthand thing of death. And so, when I was helping my parents bury this little goldfish uh, in the yard, it kind of opened my eyes to this thing. It's, it's no longer here. It's no longer doing what it does as a goldfish, you know. Before, I went out and you know, bought another goldfish at another street market and then repeated the whole process all over again. And it became a little bit easier each time to, I don't think we buried it every time. We probably did something else. And as I grew older, death kept appearing. Death just kept coming. You know, I remember doing a family tree assignment at school. I don't know if you guys have ever done a family tree. I started going through different family members I had never heard of with my parents. My parents were taking me through, you know, okay, this is your uncle, this is your great uncle, this is your aunt. And you know, with great grandparents, you know they're dead and they're not around anymore, you know, for a lot of them. But then, like, my parents would say stuff like, yeah, he died at this age, and it would always be a number that wasn't that high, like I could count to it. And then they would tell me, okay, this person, he's also dead. He died from, it was almost always cancer. He died from cancer, or she died from this car accident, or whatever it might be. And I was just sitting there thinking, man, it feels like death is some sort of, it's like a wild animal that's just lurking nearby. You know, it's waiting to pounce around the corner. I started wondering, doing this school assignment, I'm sure my teacher didn't have this in mind, but I started wondering, is death gonna come from me? Is it waiting to pounce on me? I began to imagine, if I could just avoid death, then maybe I could live forever. 
Death has been like this in the Bible as well. You know, it's never far from the foreground of what we're reading. When we read through Scripture, death is never far from the picture. And we see very soon different people meet their end. You know, we hear about these different people, these fathers of faith, these people that all of Israel puts their trust in. You know, whether it's Abraham or Moses or whoever it might be, whoever you like from Scripture, suddenly you see them die. From very early in the Bible, after the fall of man in Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death enters the scene. Death is there. And then it just continues to lurk in the background, and eventually we see it at its most threatening and the heaviest that we can see in Scripture when we see sin and death believing that they've won, when they kill life eternal in Jesus Christ himself. In today's passage, though, Paul shows us how God has the ultimate victory over his last enemy, death, through the resurrection of the dead. This is his method for gaining victory over death. And he shows how this plan unfolds. Read with me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Now remember, we've already talked about this last week as well. The Corinthians, they're split on this issue of the resurrection of the dead. Some of them believe that they will be resurrected, and some of them are openly mocking this idea of resurrection. Like, how can you believe this thing? You're going to be resurrected from the dead to the point of asking, how is flesh and blood going to inherit the kingdom of God? They ask this. Like, your body, is it going to inherit the kingdom of God? But Paul agrees with this. This is a very interesting thing. Paul agrees with this, saying, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God with just flesh and blood or with corruptible mortal bodies. The bodies that we have now cannot be the ones that receive the blessings that Paul has been talking about throughout 1 Corinthians. But the Corinthians, they completely misunderstand, they mischaracterize the very concept of resurrection. Like when you think about the resurrection, figure it out. What are you talking about? What are you thinking about? Thinking they thought that they just came back just as they were. Whereas the reality of the situation is, this resurrection is precisely what we need, but not the way that the Corinthians have envisioned it. When Paul comes to an agreement with the Corinthians to say it's true that our flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, the subtext is a change has to take place then in order for this to work. In order for you to inherit the kingdom of God, there needs to be a change. And the key to this change is a complete mystery. It's hidden to all of humanity, but it's revealed to us by God. Verses 51 to 52, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. So Paul says, I am telling you a mystery. And this is talking about revelation. This is how revelation takes place. When we talk about revelation in our faith or in the Bible, this is what we're talking about. That there are things that are unknowable 
apart from God revealing it to us, apart from God making it knowable, which is divine revelation. And what we're shown, and the mystery that Paul tells us, is that for a human being to enter into the kingdom of God, they have to first be changed. And this takes place at Jesus' return, whether when Jesus returns, you're alive or you're dead. So how does this change take place? My wife and I, uh, before Jonas was born, we used to watch a lot of uh, romantic comedies from the 80s and 90s. We were children of the 80s, and so we think that they make the best movies, the 80s and 90s, where like, every 80s and 90s movie is the same, though, uh, because you know, there's this stereotypical, unpopular character. You guys know this, right? Like, where they get this makeover from someone who's very popular, you know? And it always happens by the way of a quick montage. You know, there's music, there's really poppy, happy music, and you know, like, the popular characters sitting there, like, shaking their head at all the different outfits that come, until suddenly they're like, oh, this is it. You've done it. Now you're popular. And it's just, it's, it's over, you know? One last outfit, and this is it. And it happens so quickly, but even faster than a movie montage, we read that we will all be changed. We read this in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word that Paul uses here, which is translated moment for us, is atomos. Or this is where we get our English word atom. The, the word atomos was used to talk about such a brief period of time that it couldn't possibly be shorter. It can't be split. This is where we get Adam, okay? And for twinkling of an eye, what's being talked about is the very rapid movements of an eyeball to briefly glimpse something. Like, you know, what's faster than our sight? Like, we quickly look at something. This is how quickly it happens. It's in such an instant that the change takes place, that the moment is indivisible. You can't divide this moment. You could glance away with your eyes, and when you look back, the change has already happened. And the change that comes is one that raises the dead to be incorruptible. In other words, the flesh no longer corrupts or rots away. The body is immortal, imperishable. It will live forever. And this takes place at the last trumpet, which indicates the day of the Lord Jesus' return, which we see all throughout the Bible in Isaiah, Joel, Zephaniah, Matthew, Thessalonians, all throughout the Bible. Now, if you're like me and you know these words, you know, like trumpet, but you can't really place the sound because you're not musically inclined, you can do like I did and have a listen to it on YouTube. It can be very distracting, though, because sometimes you find a very good trumpetist, trumpeter, I don't know what the word is, and you just have to keep listening to it until the very end. I listened to the fattest trumpet solo. Um, I had to listen during the week while preparing, and it's a sound that really cuts through the air. Like in the middle of an orchestra, you can't mistake it. You listen to this trumpet, it makes you pay attention. And that's the point. The blast of the trumpet at this time was often used to try to warn people that they're about to be attacked. And so they blow the trumpet and say, get ready. Now keep in mind, all throughout our lives, all in the Bible, death has been lurking. It's waiting to pounce. It's on the prowl. And so you would expect that this trumpet blast is coming to tell us, get ready, be on the defensive, because death is coming. 
And yet this trumpet blast that we're talking about here, this last trumpet is a signal that the tables have turned. Momentum is on our side because someone's just joined the battle. We're about to have complete victory over this final enemy of ours. Why? Because the Lord himself has arrived on the battlefield and he is the reason that everything's about to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, because this is the amount of time it'll take for the battle to finish now. The fight is finished by God changing us from corruption to incorruption, from mortal to immortal, because once this takes place, death no longer has any power. It's stripped of all power because it cannot kill what is immortal. We will no longer have anything to fear because we will be immortal. Now, Paul explains uh, what has to happen in quite a poetic way through metaphor. Uh, You can read with me the next few verses there. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, and it goes on from there. I love this, not just because of the poetry of how he writes here, but because what Paul describes here is so freeing. Because imagine if it was the other way, if Paul had said, for you have to fundamentally change everything about yourself, about your corruptible body, in order to make it incorruptible. Imagine if he had said, and you have to change the very nature of this mortal body of yours to be immortal. It's on you. Like, where would you start? We wouldn't be any better off if we had been raised with just the same flesh and blood bodies. But Paul talks about change, not as something that we can accomplish, but he talks about it in this analogy of changing clothes. Clothes that we've been given. The best robe, a ring that identifies us as our father's child, new sandals for our feet, clothes that the transformative work of the Lord Jesus Christ brings into our lives. Like that second song that we sang, talking about how Jesus put on all of our sin. These are the clothes that Jesus Christ exchanges with us so that we can take on his righteousness. Now, pastor and scholar Gordon Hugenberger, uh, he talks about how the gift of special clothing has to do with inheritance. When you receive special clothing, you're about to receive an inheritance. And in the biblical times, he says that special clothes identify heirs to the family fortune. This is the case for us here because the true son of God has done something so that we can be adopted into the family and become full-fledged heirs to the inheritance. This new clothing, it signifies our victory and we're changed, clothed by incorruptibility and immortality And this is the ultimate defeat of death. And we read here, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Death is completely destroyed by the resurrection. It's swallowed up. Like, have you ever seen a large animal swallow up another animal whole? It's horrifying. You know, I used to have this fear when I looked at books with prehistoric animals, 
and it will show you the little picture of how big you are compared to this animal. Now look at this, you know, giant bird or this megalodon or whatever, and I would just imagine getting eaten in one bite. Now think, am I going to be alive? And this is, has nothing to do with it, okay? But this is the level of victory here. And Jonas, you know, my son, when he looks at this stuff, he, I don't know, like he gets fearful of dinosaurs because we're looking at the pop-up books and here's like this T-Rex just terrifying, opening its, its jaw at Jonas. Whenever we get to that page, he quickly flips. And like any good dad, I flip back to try to, <laughs> I try to see his reaction, and he hates it. He doesn't take out that book anymore. Um, this is the level of victory there is, though, because there's no fighting back for death. It, it's not as though some part of us goes down with death. You know, death doesn't go down swinging. This is why our whole selves are resurrected. It's not just a detached soul or a spirit that goes away to this other place while death gets a small measure of victory when it takes our bodies. That's not the case. It's a complete and utter victory over death. Not even the smallest bit of it is left behind. It's swallowed up completely. It has no hope. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And up until this point, death has been there. It's not just something that happens at the end of life, but it's almost as, we need to think about it like this animalistic, this alien entry into our world. It shouldn't exist, but it does. Its shadow was cast over us. Those of us who have experienced death on some level know that there's this harsh, this immediate pain that comes along with it. And time passes and it becomes this dull ache over time. It's still there. But the Bible tells us that the sting of death is not just this pain, but it's sin. And that this sin, it was even able to use the law, which is good. How? How can sin use the law? It's precisely because we are flesh and blood. Right here on earth, we are flesh and blood. We're sold as a slave under sin, and sin now lives in us, clinging to us, causing us to sin. And we see this in Romans 7, and we know this in our own lives. If you just examine your own life, every single day of your life, you'll see it. Sin continues to wage war in us making us prisoners to the law of sin in our bodies, and then the law, the good law, becomes weakened by our flesh. So how can it be that in this hopeless situation where sin used the law as its own power, that God used sin and death for the final victory? Because here's the true sting. This part in bold from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament, from Hosea 13. It reads this, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. If you read this, I think you can tell this has a very different tone to what we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not very comforting when we read Hosea because it's Hosea's prophetic judgment against Ephraim talking about the guilt of sin that's been recorded and built up over time, 
And God is now calling upon the power of death to come and bring punishment against Ephraim. This is what we read. It's not comforting. This punishment goes down the line throughout Israel's history, landing ultimately to rest on God's own son, Jesus. He's the one who ultimately receives these stings and these barbs of death that we're reading about. And in this, death itself is transformed into the doorway to our ultimate victory. Because Jesus received the punishment that's stored up for the guilt of our sins, and we're freed from the law that death and sin attempt to use against us. The other day, um, Bora and I, we took Jonas to the zoo, and there were, you know, while we're walking around trying to look at animals, you know, trying to force Jonas to look at animals instead of whatever else he was looking at, and you know, along the way, there's all these bees kind of buzzing around, you know? and they're in the trees, they're in the bushes, and I'm like, why are there so many bees? There's so many bees in this zoo. And I was a little bit worried because Jonas, he's, he's not very patient yet, hopefully, hopefully yet. And I was afraid that he was going to, you know, a bee comes close and he just swats it or something, and then the bee just stings him, you know. And then as we're exiting this reptile house, I see this sign that says, we have stingless bees here at the zoo. I didn't even know you could do this. I didn't even know that this was a thing. But suddenly, all of that fear just went out the window, and I was just thinking, hey, like, you know, go for it. <laughs> just stick Jonas into the bee. No, we didn't do that, but <laughs> Jesus... He took the full sting of death on our behalf. And we Christians now face a stingless death so that Hosea's prophetic judgment becomes a taunt towards death. This is what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 15. We can read Hosea and we can read it as a taunt now because at the trumpet blast, we're found not guilty of sin. And we're set free from the power and the dominion of sin because of what Jesus did for us. This isn't to say that, you know, when we experience death in those close to us that it won't hurt. Uh, Obviously, we still experience it here on this earth. But it's no longer our most fearsome opponent. We no longer have to fear that it's going to pounce around the corner for us because we know that we'll overcome. In the 1600s, there was this uh, Anglican minister and poet named John Donne. Uh, He was faced with death from... A very early age, uh, his father died when he was only four years old, uh, leaving behind many children and, you know, obviously his mother. And he continued to face death in his life constantly. Two of his children were stillborn. Three died before the age of 10. His wife died in childbirth with their last child, who was also stillborn. Another of his children died at the age of 18, And you can imagine, he's going through all this, and, you know, he doesn't know what to do. Like, all the people closest to me are going. And so he struggles with the thoughts of suicide. You know, he writes contemplating suicide and defending his position so that when he goes, people will understand. He doesn't go through with it, and then he faces a nearly fatal illness. He nearly dies again. And then near the end of his life, I mean, he's a minister by this point. He's a Christian. And he writes one of his most famous poems, Holy Sonnet 10. I'll read this to you. It's in Old English, so try to follow along. Death be not proud, though some have called thee 
mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must follow, must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. I mean, some of this, you know, you might have to read over again. Uh, you read this from a man like John Donne, who's experienced so much death and sadness and illness in his life. He's telling death. He's personifying it and saying, what are you so proud of? You don't have power. You're just a doorway. I'm going to wake up eternally. I'll be with my loved ones. And death, you will be the one that dies forever. As we read in 1 Corinthians this morning, death is stripped of all power by Jesus, and death truly is weak. Death, you shall die. Everything in this chapter has been pointing to God's plan being executed through his son Jesus. And as we Christians, we look to Jesus as well, not to ourselves. We find that victory that we've been waiting for. We find that we're redeemed by him. We join with him in victory over death. And because of all of this, Paul can write this final line of this chapter. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Without death's defeat by Jesus' work, these are probably very meaningless words that we're powerless to carry out. And even if we were able to do it, what would be the point? It would be pointless because we would die and cease to exist anyway. So why would we try? But as verse 57 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him, we're called upon to be steadfast, to be immovable, to excel in the Lord's work because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We can continue to work and give ourselves constantly to God's work of ministry, meaning anything that we do solely because of the commitment that we have to Jesus. Why will we need to be steadfast and immovable? Why do we need to be reminded that our labor is not in vain? Because a lot of what we do as Christians, we pointed out before, it doesn't make sense. A lot of what we're called to do can be burdensome, can be strange and uncomfortable. It can go against the wisdom of this world. We saw last week and on Friday night when our missionaries, Martin and Deborah, they visited they talked about their missions work in Cambodia. They've been there for 10 years. We see it in our own volunteering and our serving here at church. 
in the way that we freely give of our time, our gifts, our money. If we had no faith in Jesus, surely none of us would even think about doing any of this. We would join in with the Corinthians. We would eat and drink. We would party. We would give ourselves to greed. We would give ourselves over to sexual immorality, to idolatry. For tomorrow we die. But we have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's won the victory. And we now stand on this faith, knowing that our lives, we're newly clothed in him. And this results in us being raised from the dead. We're redeemed and restored so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. This is what we look forward to, brothers and sisters. This is what you can find certainty in. Death's demise and our victory. How about we pray? Father, we look upon the face, the words of our Lord, the risen Jesus Christ. We feel your love. We hear that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That there's no chasm too deep. There's no gap too wide. That your love is for us and will never leave us. Whom then shall we fear? We want to declare, along with the saints that have gone now, that we have no fear of death. For God, you have stripped death of all power. And in this final battle, we will join with you in this final victory over death. For we will be raised imperishable, incorruptible, immortal so that death can have no power over us we look forward to this day God when we will be raised to live with you forevermore when we will join in with our friends our family the saints of old who have gone before us in celebrating your goodness in raising up the hallelujahs in calling upon all of creation, all of redeemed creation, to praise and glorify your holy name. Until that day comes, would you keep us steadfast, immovable, excelling in the work of the Lord here on earth? We know, Lord, that none of this is meaningless because you've given meaning and hope to our existence here. So would you strengthen our faith would you help us to strengthen and encourage one another? And would you help us, Lord, to live for you? We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.